0: All right, let's go. So today we're going to continue with chapter three of the King, Kingdom of God series. On the back of your outlines is a uh, list of the 15 titles. I hope everyone has an outline. Everyone have an outline? Um, in chapter three, we're looking at major biblical thre- themes creation, dominion, covenant. So far, we have looked uh, 3A, was that eternal decree, and 3B, covenant. Today, covenant theology. Now, Our series theme verse, Matthew 16, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, lets us know that the kingdom of God is our goal or priority as Christians. Jesus would not put that right at the heart of of his teaching or his model pattern of how to pray, because what we're to pray for is what we're to work for. And in fact, working for things that we're not undergirding with prayer is pretty much a waste of time. If God does not cause the growth, then you might as well not sow. Uh, we can sow, we can water, but God must cause the growth. And God has chosen to, call, to cause the growth when his people pray out, cry out to him, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So. Uh, In chapter 1, we looked at the primacy of of the kingdom. We surveyed pretty much the whole Bible to show that the kingdom of God, every major section, the Pentateuch, the historical books, the wisdom books, the prophets, major and minor, the gospels, the epistles, etc., every major uh, part of the Bible, the kingdom of God is the central theme. Okay, And it's the one theme that unites all of Scripture. And really, we just scratched the surface of that idea in chapter 1 by looking at some of the main verses that talk about that, but we didn't even look at the framework of covenant, uh, a covenant people, redemption, all the things that play into the kingdom of God theme, all the metaphors and literary uh, examples and so forth. So um, in chapter 2, we define the kingdom in 12 statements. I've put a reduced version of, uh, or condensed version, abbreviated version of five of those statements on your outline. I'm going to whip through them fast just to, I think you need to get the flavor of what the kingdom of God is. Most people have unbiblical ideas that pop into their head when they think of the uh, phrase, the kingdom of God. So The kingdom of God is the reign of God, the government of God, the rulership or dominion of God. It's the sphere or realm in which his good and perfect will is willingly enacted or willingly entered into. It is not only in heaven, but it is is on the earth now. Uh, Two, God owns and is completely sovereign over all the earth. So that in some sense, his will is done everywhere, always, always. Uh, I hope we, we understand that. Um, uh, even his enemies, who don't intend to do his will, end up doing his will. Isn't that awesome? Uh, but only the recipients of his reconciling and empowering grace are freed, are made free to participate in his redemptive purposes, that is his kingdom purposes, Uh, That's why Paul uses the phrase in Romans 1 and Romans 15, he hems in the entire epistle by talking about how God has granted him grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. True biblical faith is not intellectually assenting to some ideas. James 2.19 makes it clear that even the demons intellectually assent to those ideas, but they're not loving Jesus, they're not worshiping Jesus, as uh, those of you who've been helping me with some... Deliverance, no, they're not on God's side. They're not trying to bless people and make them more Christ-like. They're lying spirits that out to destroy you. And so um, the kingdom, even his enemies do his will, but his kingdom people want to do his will, through, and they've been granted through grace a heart to do the obedience of faith. They hunger and thirst for righteousness by a new creation happening in their heart. Third, the kingdom of God is both present and future. It's not primarily heaven or the age to come, but it's a breaking into this present evil age with the power, order, Holy Spirit power, and reign of the king now and on the earth. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Wherever the spirit of God is is liberating people to, to have Jesus reign over them instead of the world, the flesh, and the devil reign over you, uh, there the kingdom of God is being made manifest. So, um, fourthly, God is eternally purposed to express his reign through a nation of people born of one regal head in this present age. There's two races really in the earth, those who are reborn of God and those who have not yet been reborn of God that are only born of Adam and Eve. And it has always been God's intention since creation of Adam and Eve to to have a federal head who's in covenant with God, a covenant federal head, birth a race of people who would uh, become his people and manifest his glory by creating a nation within the nations, a city within the cities, a people within the peoples of the earth, to carry the power of his spirit and demonstrate his glory Obeying his laws, etc. Fifthly, God's predestined purpose has always been and remains to produce a kingdom of priests, born of this is a good one because today is Pentecost Sunday. God wants to have a kingdom of priests that are born of one regal head, born of and filled with, and extending the manifest presence of His Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus said, uh, people Philip said to Jesus. You know, Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus said, "Philip, didn't you go to the nine thirty adult Sunday school class?" (laughs) You know, (laughs) He said, "Philip, don't you get it? Like if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I walk by the power of the Spirit. So if you've seen the Spirit, you've seen the Father." And if you're reborn of the Spirit, you should be able to, the, the goal of a Christian is to be able to say, with Paul, 1 Corinthians 11 1, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. You want to know what Christianity is all about? Come over and help me paint my living room, <laughs> and you'll meet Jesus. <laughs> you know, uh, I'll come over to your house and help you paint your living room, and you'll meet Jesus. Let's have strawberry shortcake together, and you'll meet Jesus. <laughs> Uh, hang out with my wife and I and you'll meet Jesus because the manifest presence of the Spirit of God, it's dwelling on us in such a way that we demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit and uh, as, as needed for God's redemptive purposes, the power of the Spirit in the gifts of the Spirit. Christians are all called to regularly be those kind of priests. Uh, we're to be God's temple, built according to his pattern, overflowing with his glory in demonstrable manifestations of the Spirit. And the reason we talk a lot about books like When the Church Was a Family, The Kingdom and the Power, uh, Patterns of Christian Community, books on uh, like Disciple Shepherding Commitment, What's the Spirit Saying to the Churches that Study Plurality of Elders and so forth, is the pattern ultimately matters most of all. What we have today is almost all patterns of what, how we do church are humanistic patterns made because it seems like it was a good idea to do this or that, and it's by the seat of our pants and by um, modern marketing ideas or whatever, but it has to be according to his pattern. That was kind of the whole point of what God emphasized to Moses in the tabernacle that God emphasized through David to Solomon. In the building of the, of the temple, uh, Jesus said, you know, that he was an example, but the Greek word there really means I'm your pattern. If you're going to be my temple, be a, follow my pattern. You can't just do it your way. Then we looked at chapter 3a, the idea of eternal decree. God's kingdom plan must be his ongoing, current, and eternal plan. God doesn't get knocked off track. God, when Adam and Eve fell, God didn't go, oh, the serpent really tricked me there. I wasn't planning on that. <laughs> Gee, I didn't foreknow and ordain all things. I, somehow I must be less than God, right? That's, a lot of people have that kind of a view of God in their mind. But he, when you, even when you sin... He's just helping you see your heart so you can get humbled and come to him for grace. He, he tests you. Uh, it, you know, the Bible uses the phrase at times, he tests you so he, he could see what's in your heart. It's more so that he could reveal to you what's in your heart. He, he's not like, oh, man, I wasn't expecting that if that person got in this situation of temptation that they weren't sanctified enough to, to be loyal to me here and there. I'm so surprised. I didn't know that was in there. <laughs> we're surprised at times because we're prideful and we think we're more righteous than we are and we need God's help to see the depth of our sin and so forth, but he's not surprised, right? So uh, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning And from ancient times, things that have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He doesn't have a plan B, nor does he need a plan B. His plan has always been from Genesis to Revelation what we are studying in this kingdom of God series. That's his kingdom plan. Um, Chapter 3B, we started to look at views of history. Uh, non-Christian views like a cyclical view, a chaotic view, a a linear pessimism, Uh, also a non-Christian humanistic view, a linear optimism, which was the view of history of the Enlightenment and so forth, and and the French philosophes and uh, all that. Um, But his view is the eternal kingdom uh, progressive view. He is progressively bringing the kingdom of heaven Into earth, the perfect tabernacle of heaven into the perfect garden of the earth, the perfect tabernacle of heaven, the city of God into the city of the earth called the church, the city of God. Uh, You know, from Genesis to Revelation, he is bringing the new heavens, the new earth, the new. He is not making all things, all new things. He has always determined that he would make all things new. So, um, that, that's really important. Then we looked at eight common characteristics of biblical covenants, and if you want to uh, review those, you'll have to uh, look at last week's notes and or last week's podcast, because I'm not going to review those. Today I want to, based on those eight common characteristics of biblical covenants, I want to start to talk about uh, the, a concept called covenant theology. Covenant theology or covenant continuity Uh, is a way of looking at the Bible, okay? It's based on the first and foremost, an idea that all of God's ways, his truths, what he's doing, what he speaks, come out of his attributes. The mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. You You know, Terry and Kent have become jogging buddies. And I imagine once in a while, one of one of, or the other of them will come up in conversation, and Terry will say, "Well, that's Kent for you, because because he Kent does what what Kent's attributes are, and, ter- and vice versa." And people will go, "Yep, that's Beth. You know, uh, uh, she t- paints these weird green colors instead of blues. No, uh, whatever. She has, you know, people do things that come out of their attributes. All of what God is doing comes out of His attributes, and." First and foremost is he's eternal. He's outside and above time. Omniscience means he doesn't have to remember things. You know, Taylor, like any other human being, is searching her memory banks all the time. Let's see where I put that. Where did I put Israel's diapers? Oh, yeah. Where's that Bible study I did? Uh, we're always having to bring things back up to the surface of our memory. It's even how computers work. God doesn't. He has all knowledge on the surface of his memory at all times in the present moment outside and above time looking into the time space continuum and he's never doesn't have to remember anything cuz he never forgot anything. Now fortunately for us he knows our humanity so the whole bible he says remember remember make memorial stones do this in remembrance of me. Second Peter three times he says I I write these things so you can bring into your remembrance the the gospel and the things I've taught you because I'm about to go be with the Lord. Remember, remember, remember. But you never have to tell God to remember. He never forgot anything. So his kingdom plans, uh, as you understand the Bible, you have to understand that it was written by one God. Even though there's 40 human authors on three continents over 2,000 years, it's all the expression of one person, One mind, three persons in one being who who, uh, had an eternal covenant amongst themselves and uh, an eternal plan, and we're along for the ride to to, uh, enjoy being a part of it unfolding. And the more we see how much it has unfolded and it is unfolding and it will unfold, the more we worship and serve and love and get to enter into being a part of it. So uh, covenant theology is first and foremost an interpretive hermeneutic. Uh, Hermeneutic means interpretive principle. The word comes from uh, 1678 uh, from the Greek hermeneutikos, interpreting, from Hermeneutes, interpreter, or hermeneutium, to interpret. Uh, It's interestingly a derivative of the uh, Greek god Hermes, who was supposed to be the Tutor of divine speech, writing, and knowledge. Uh, interesting that it's a, a theological word that, uh, that theologians borrowed uh, from Greek mythology to, uh, to uh, make the word. Frankly, that's why I like the word paradigm better. It has no Greek theology. It, it's actually from the Greek, but it means, um, it means declaring or understanding the pattern. Uh, It's made of two Greek words also, and the whole idea of a paradigm is a set of assumptions or concepts, values, that are practiced by and constitute a way of viewing reality among an academic community or any kind of community. So we can talk about the Reformers' way of looking at Scripture or their paradigm. We can talk about evangelical paradigms of looking at Scripture. And whether you know it or not, your life has been influenced and, 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 and controlled by paradigms in the cultural communities that you belong to and grow up in to such a way that if you haven't consciously uh, taken apart the paradigm and, and reexamined its assumptions and and re-decided to become a different paradigm and think it through a different paradigm, you're actually controlled by paradigms in most cases that you don't know you're controlled by. That's the point of public education. It's a secular humanistic state brainwashing you in its worldview and its paradigms of reality. It's not just immoralism, it's amoralism. There isn't right and wrong. There's only situations. There's no eternal laws or decrees or morals. There's no creator. You, we evolved. In, you, you don't have a set calling or destiny, or, or a, a man doesn't have a basic nature that's created in the image of God and sinful. Or so. You're whoever you want to evolve to be. So forth. Believe me, every, every educational system, every community, every subcommunity has a worldview, a religion, that's based on certain paradigm assumptions that you're being brainwashed in. And that's why Socrates, Bill and Ted's friend from the 5th century, Socrates, said to, uh, to, to live an unexamined life on the paradigm level is to, is, is to waste your life. But that's probably the most a notable characteristic of both modern and postmodern thinkers is that they live by paradigms that they've never thought about. They live by a certain assumptions and realities. And most people, even uh, I would say uh, since the Enlightenment, the predominant person who actually goes to a Judeo-Christian church, now we're trying to address some of this stuff by things like catechism and discipleship and and a whole different way of teaching and, just, and lots of things and restoring the church. But for the most part, most Christians have all sorts of ideas and paradigms in their mind that are, that are not from God or Christ or the church. Now, covenant theology is a, an idea that God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God that the bible is a series of covenants and that even the history of the bible is centered in those covenants so the bible doesn't just give us any old kind of history every history is teaching you it's a polemic that is it it's uh got a night, it's got a religion it's teaching you and when you hear young people today say stuff like oh i don't like history it's because they've only been exposed to a secular humanistic view of history that's random chaos And therefore, it doesn't have any meaning. So I can't stand history is a statement of a religion. Because a Christian loves history. You can't love Christ and not love to study history. That would be be impossible. That would mean you have a Jesus of your imagination in your head. A false god. You're, You're still an idol worshiper. Because our God is the God of history. He declares the end from the beginning, and his book is about the history of his unfolding his purposes. And he doesn't just give us, like, if we were, if we were uh, of the Ro- Greco-Roman humanistic world, no way would we have focused in on a guy named Abraham. We would have just ignored Abraham. Abraham. We wouldn't have had eyes to see that the real thing that was happening in the earth was centered in this guy Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and his 12 sons and so forth. Because only people who see God's eternal covenant purposes as coming through his seed of his people can understand the right history. And the Bible gives us the right history, the covenant history. It's not to say that we can't be enlightened by and augmented by studying other histories, but only so far as we fit them in to the covenant histories of God's purposes, are we really getting the point of history? Hopefully we, we see this. Now, let me give you an example that's not of covenant theology so you can understand this concept of a a hermeneutic principle or a way of looking at Scripture. Uh, Since the Enlightenment, most Western people have looked at Scripture in an anti-supernatural paradigm. One of the reasons the gospel uh, has done so well in Central America, South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, is because they don't have anti-supernatural paradigms based on Western enlightenment pseudo-scientific thinking. So when people get healed and people speak in tongues and they prophesy and, and people get raised from the dead, they're like, well, duh, we always knew God had to be like this. Whereas Western people say, what? That can't happen. We are, we've been brainwashed in public school. We went to public school. We know that can't happen. God just can't heal people today. God doesn't do these kind of things. And so somehow we can actually be Christians and go to a Christian church and read the Gospels and have not, never have across our mind that we're supposed to do the same kinds of things Jesus did. And we think, I don't know, that's just like that was evolutionary story, fairy tale for backward-thinking people or something. You see, that's, that's a set of lenses you've been brainwashed to bring to the Scriptures. And there's two different reasons why one is sensationist thinking, the other is, is humanistic thinking, and they have actually intercrossed in the church in such a way that, you know, uh, the most famous thing uh, about uh, John Wimber, a lot of people say Bill Johnson, who we recommend his when heaven invades earth just as an introduction to the, the life of, of the Holy Spirit and miracles and the kingdom being now, and if, if, the, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then know the kingdom's in your midst. A lot of people actually say Bill Johnson is probably the the one who carries the mantle of this guy named John Wimber the best today. And John Wimber kind of just went to his pastor as a young Christian, and he said, "I love your sermons." As we're going through the Gospel of Mark, and I, oh, it's been so exciting each week to listen to your sermons. When are we gonna go ahead and do this? And the pastor said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "You know, like Jesus, like." You know, go proclaim the gospel to the poor, uh, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, freely you've been given, freely give. When are we going to do this? And the pastor looked at him kind of funny, and he, because it's a paradigm conflict. And the pastor said, well, we don't do those kind of things. We just think about (laughs) them. We just talk about it. Because we've actually been brainwashed with an expectation that that's not reality. And that's why I, I, I say to us, we have to constantly cry out to God, say, Lord, our expectations of you are sub-biblical, they're sub-reality. Save us from this anti-supernatural paradigm because it's crouching at your door and its desire is for you to kill you. It's a paradigm of serpents and scorpions. So likewise, covenant thinking is a paradigm that you bring a grid, a set of lenses that you that you perceive or filter Scripture through, and you've been influenced more by non-covenantal paradigms than you know. Uh, so, uh, let's move on. Does everyone get that? That's the first thing I want to say about covenant uh, theology: is it's a hermeneutic or a, a grid, a pattern to to look at Scripture that that. Uh, emphasizes the unity of God and therefore the unity of covenant and the unity of God's purposes. The scriptures are not all disjointed written by different gods, which really is the outworking of the current paradigms today. Most Christians today actually have a different God of the Old Testament and the New Testament in their mind. I was listening to one of the... uh, One of the great uh, patriarchs of Eastern Orthodoxy today and and so forth. And he was at, uh, people asked, well, why did God say to wipe out the Canaanites and so forth? And his answer wasn't uh, religion, his answer was religion hadn't evolved so much then. As it did, as it has by now, by our modern understandings. Eh, That is an unacceptable, unbiblical answer and that must might be what modern eastern orthodox people believe but believe me it wasn't what the eastern orthodox people of the first five or six centuries believed and therefore it's it's i don't care how much you claim there's some unbroken apostolic succession through offices True apostolic succession is the apostolic succession of the one God who has one eternal word, one eternal decree, and one spirit to administer it through. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And any kind of concept that says, well, they just hadn't evolved so much in the book of Exodus and, and Numbers and so forth, is eh. eh, eh, eh. It's a, it's a brainwashing in, in, in a serpent's paradigm. Indeed hath God said. No, God hadn't said, they just hadn't, their ideas of God hadn't said yet. It's a very dangerous way of thinking. And there's more of it in modern think Christianity than, uh, than I care to admit. Now, in covenant theology, uh, most covenant theologians think, think there are two types of covenants in the Bible. One is the theological covenants of the Bible, and in a sense, they would say, um, like the covenant of grace, for instance, that they talk about is uh, the new covenant, and it's, uh, they actually think also the old covenant was the covenant of grace, we'll talk about that in a minute, but um, while it might not be spell, spelled out as clearly as my eight statements about covenant, which really probably ought to be nine or ten, I was even thinking last night of a couple of things about covenant, biblical covenants that I didn't... If you remember when I covered the eight, I said it was an exhaustive list. When I write it into a book, I'm probably going to end up with about ten aspects of all covenants. Um, but they're implied in Scripture. They're derived from, from uh, integrating... Uh, scripture and rightly dividing the word of truth and put shuffling it back together. And, and they're, they're scriptural covenants, but there's no place that just says, this is this the new covenant, and it's this way, and so forth. Now, um, those who believe... Uh, the, the other kind of covenant that they talk about, number two, is what they would call biblical or some people call federal head covenants. Those are covenants that are more specifically uh, spelled out in one particular place, and they would include the covenants with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. Uh, some people would add, you know, sort of renewals of covenants with Ezra and Nehemiah or whatever, the prophets recalling people back to the covenant. Uh, and then Christ, the final expression of God's eternal covenant. Uh, the, what we call the new covenant. And then those are... Our scriptural covenants that are more thoroughly spelled out, and usually it's the, the sovereign God, a susanry covenant, making covenant with a unique, as our, our definitions of the kingdom of God have said, God always wanted to have a race of people born of one federal head that would, that would uh, be born of him by dying to self and reborn into the federal head to manifest his glory. And that was the whole purpose of Adam and Abraham, and et cetera., as we'll get into when we get into chapter five, and we study, kind of look at federal head covenant history of, of the Old Testament. I felt like we couldn't go right into that till we laid some groundwork because of current most people have not really uh, most people have only imbibed uh, current evangelical paradigms of looking at Scripture and have never really uh, stepped outside of, of that and said, "Hey, the ancient church fathers didn't look at a scripture that way. The reformers didn't look at scripture that way. Uh, you know, frankly, the apostles didn't look at scripture uh, the way Darby or Schofield looked at scripture or something. Hopefully you're following with me. But so those biblical coverments are usually expressed in federal heads, and we'll look at those more thoroughly in chapters 5 and 6 of this series. But... Um, Getting back to theological covenants, uh, although they're, they're uh, made by composites of Scripture, they, they nevertheless do exist in Scripture. Uh, the problem you get into is once, now once you get into covenant theologians, they don't agree on how many of those covenants are. And there's three ther- theories. There's a theory that there's one overall eternal uh, covenant in the Bible, that there's two covenants in the Bible, and there's another theory that there's three covenants in the Bible. Let's start with the two theory in uh, Well, let's just kind of open that up to you. Uh, First, I want to kind of read uh, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that if you understand that grace always works through faith, then you will understand quite quickly that there's actually only one covenant in the Bible, the eternal covenant. So, um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Uh, Hebrews two ten and Hebrews 12, 2 tell us that Jesus is the initiator or author of our faith. And all covenants are based on faith, and they, they are based on grace, the grace God's gracious choice as is, is a suzerain Lord. God uh, graciously grants the covenant to his people. He declares who the parties are, and all the things we covered last week. And uh, he graciously does that, and you enter it by believing in him. In his covenant, that he is that he and his word are one and the same, that he's a God who keeps his word, those who are lost are people who don't understand God keeps his word. they're still listening to a voice in their head that says indeed, half God said, God knows that on the day you eat of it, and so forth. you look at um this this is uh happens. Uh, I, I work a lot by the grace of God. I work with troubled people, take a lot of very troubled people through deliverance and so forth. And any person who's really troubled, I mean, has a lot of emotional troubles, uh, delusional, anger management issues, immaturity issues into their adulthood, or whatever that is, it basically has not set his seal that God is true. They still have doubts in their mind about the truth of God and their own views. uh, My controlling spirit, my they they are still competing with whether they are God or God is God. And when it comes to deliverance, when it comes to healing from severe psychological problems, when you really get to start working with any person who's tormented or troubled or struggles with a lot of layers of depression or anger management issues or confusions or what have you, it really gets down to they they are, are, you know, like Elijah said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions if Baal is God, serve him, if the Lord is God, serve him? The serpent came to Eve, and he first questioned God's word. And if you, if you question God's word, it's because you're replacing it with your own. That's the essence of humanism was born in Genesis 3. And humanism is uh, first doubts what God said if he has the authority to say it. And then ultimately doubts the truth and reality of God's Word, whether His character can be trusted over your control of the situation. It always gets down to that. And frankly, once people make a really severe decision that the Lord is God, His Word is truth, they usually can grow, get rid of like severe psychological and emotional problems usually in less than a year, especially with the help of good counseling and deliverance. But as long as you're hesitating between the two opinions that the serpent's giving Eve, uh, your word or your perspective or your control or your moral, you know, you shall be as God, he said. You'll determine good and evil. You'll be in control of what's right and wrong and how this situation should be handled and so forth. You, know, you won't be under, led by the Spirit of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Romans 8. But many people are still led by their own perspectives. Even when I deal sometimes with immature guys, they always get down to they have their perspective. The scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the elders of the church have a different perspective. And they want to hold on. Well, I'll go they'll even say, Well, then I want to go consult this person because I don't like your perspective. You know, because that's what immaturity is. It's it's having a different covenant view of god now um that's important grace always works through faith so the people who say there's two and three covenants uh they say this that there was a covenant with adam that they call the covenant of works you'll see this if you read j.i packer's book that i mentioned here somewhere in the notes uh that would be a good little book it's available only by 99 cent uh what do you call those kind of books? Electronic uh, Kindle, Kindle books. Uh, There's a 99-cent Kindle book called Covenant Theology, but he's from uh, Packers and Evangelical, so he's kind of like half-reformed and half-evangelical, and he believes in the, actually the three-covenant theory. And the two-covenant theory and the three-covenant theory both basically are in agreement with each other. I'll explain this in, hopefully quickly. Um, but the one covenant, uh, the, the two-covenant people basically say, there was a covenant with Adam that they call the covenant of works. One covenant people like Calvin and St. Augustine, they are actually in the minority in church history. Uh, for instance, if you read chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, that's a great, uh, little, you could just write that down and Google it and read Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, and you'll see a, you'll see a great definition of covenant history in just a, this much text. However, they're of the two-covenant theory, which Calvin rejected. Calvin did not agree with the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's uh, because what they say is the first covenant was made with Adam, and we would call, one covenant people would call that the covenant of grace called the Dominion Covenant, or the covenant of grace called the Adamic Covenants, because all covenants are by grace through faith. Whereas, um, Uh, Evangelical covenant theologians call that the covenant of works. So they'll say, Adam was created and put in the garden, and he was given one command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and his covenant relationship was born of whether he, by works, obeyed that or not. I say that misses the whole point of the whole Bible, because Adam, Adam... didn't choose to be created. He was created by grace. The garden was prepared by grace. He was put into the garden by grace. He was born in a relationship with God by faith through grace, which is total grace. And uh, all covenants have laws and commands. Even the covenant of the New Testament covenant of grace talks about the obedience of faith. And all covenants have sanctions for disobeying and the sanction was, and the day you eat of it, you shall truly die. Now, God didn't specifically tell them the, that, and when you die, I'm going to have to cut you off from the tree of life, lest you eat of it in your unsanctified sinful nature, so I'm going to even have to escort you out of the garden of grace and put a cherubim to guard the way back into it so man can't find his way into it, except when he eats of the tree of life, Jesus Christ, and is restored to eternal life through the tree of life, Jesus Christ, and given access again to God in his garden, in his his sanctuary. So, um, two covenant people will say that's called the covenant. Adam's covenant was works, and then God began through Noah and Abraham. They would say all the other biblical covenants were by grace, I say the first one was by grace, working through faith, and that these sep- second kind of covenants were the covenants of grace. Now, people who believe in three covenants, all, all they do is say that the covenants of grace that are expressed through Noah, Abraham, David, of course, I like skip Moses, all the way through the new covenant through Jesus Christ, those, the covenants of grace are God's interaction with humankind through grace. But God had a, they call it the redemptive covenant, and you'll actually see in their literature, they'll have GC for grace covenant, uh, uh, WC for works covenant, and the RC, the redemptive covenant, is the covenant that existed from all eternity between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, That the son would come to the earth and redeem the earth and the father would choose a bride for his son and use his servant, like in Genesis 24, to send his servant to a faraway country, the earth, to convert and sanctify a bride for his son and so forth. So they would call the redemptive covenant the covenant that existed in the Godhead. And that's actually a useful concept but I still say it's just all one God working out one grand covenant with many subcovenants. However you want to divide it for thinking purposes, they're really not saying anything much different from one another. Hopefully this is clear. Um, Lastly, uh, covenant theology is normally contrasted with dispensationalism, Uh, We will explain that in a lot more in chapter 12 when we talk about uh, modern ideas that are in the church that that hide the kingdom of God or conceal the kingdom of God um, that hinder God's purposes. Uh, There are actually theologies, the most prominent theologies in the church today are actually counter God and are actually uh, hindering God's kingdom purposes uh, unintentionally in some cases. And so we'll look at those in chapter twelve. Um, I'm probably gonna I'm probably gonna need another week to continue to talk about the uh, about covenant theology. So we're we're down at the bottom of the first page. Uh, covenant theology is normally contrasted with a prevalent the most prevalent theology in modern Christianity. That's uh, most people think of it as evangelical theology, but it's actually Become Roman Catholic theology. It's become uh, most pro- it's it's the vast vast majority over ninety percent of, of Protestant thinking theology, and it's an idea called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism was birthed by a guy named J. N. Darby in the eighteen thirties, uh, in the late eighteen hundreds. It swept the church. It was a complete new idea. Uh, there are attempts to argue that. Some of the ancient church fathers had dispensational ideas and so forth. um, I I I personally read articles by people who disagree with my position on purpose quite a bit. In fact, I I read more articles by people who disagree with my position uh, than I do by people who agree with my position because it sharpens your thinking skills. But uh, there's a good article by a dispensationalist uh, named Thomas Ice... And it's it's called A Short History of Dispensationalism. It's not that short, actually. But uh, (laughs) uh, it's like me saying I have short messages. (laughs) You have to take that with a grain of salt. But uh, it's on a a website called the uh, Rapture Ready website. And so if you want to read a pro-dispensational view, he does a good job of tracing the history of dispensational thinking and the major thinkers in it like Darby, uh, Schofield Uh, etc etc we'll we'll look at that in chapter 12 more Um, you know so next week we'll pick it up uh, talking about covenant continuity Um, I probably shouldn't have reviewed this week next week I won't review but I'm trying to make sure we tie this all together in our minds as best as I can so next week we will pick it up on the back side of the page with the uh, the idea of continuity between the covenants which is a basic idea in covenant theology